Less Than 2000, the podcast. All right, man. So I think we're in a little over our heads here. I think we might want to bring in some reinforcements for this topic. Why do you say that? I don't know. It's just uh, kind of older stuff, stuff that's not necessarily directly in our wheelhouse. Well, I guess it's not really directly in our wheelhouse, but I mean, you've seen a lot of the, a lot of these films. You've seen Jaws. You've seen Star Wars. You've seen Taxi Driver. You've seen you've seen tons of these movies. Absolutely, I've seen these things, and I am an expert in them. But let's just raise the level of our discussion by bringing in somebody who's really intelligent and can uh, really just raise the level of discourse on this show. I think we should bring on uh, uh, my friend Roland, who's a who's a, a film connoisseur. We are good on all fronts, except for the fact that we've got Roland as our as our guest today. Oh, that's like, except the fact. <laughs> yeah, we, we the te- scraping the bottom of the barrel, man. I'm 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 happy to be here. Roland Mannerin joins us today. He is an expert. He's a cinephile. He is a uh, film guru that we decided to bring on to give us... And he's also a lot older than us. He's a good six years older than us. So we thought we'd bring him in to talk about today's topic, which is like 70s movies, 70s blockbusters, and how it influenced our cinema today. Roland Mannerin, thanks for joining us. Anytime, guys. Happy to be here. So I was uh, I was getting ready. I was preparing for, for today, and I, and I had this realization that hit me. I'm really excited about today because... Both of you have greatly influenced my career. Adam, when I was 10, got me into theater and writing and got me into the arts. And then 10 years later, Roland is the guy who actually introduced me to the world of production and got me actually making and helping and assisting on projects. So I have you two to thank for a lot of my career. And so you're both here today and that's really exciting. That's awesome. Thank you. You're welcome, Chad. You're welcome for giving you a career. <laughs> now we know who the troll is. The one guy says, you're welcome. The other guy goes, oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, I was, I was, I've heard stories that Jaws went, was so behind, so over budget, so terrible, that the studio actually sat Spielberg down and said, okay, it's going to be okay if you want to pull the plug. And he was like, no, we're getting through this thing. That movie was a production train wreck. And then it becomes what officially starts what is now the American blockbuster. Right? It's interesting how a lot of those things start, you know, um, because what we're doing, well, and what we're doing, what uh, pretty much all film um, is kind of a series of happy accents. You know, it's, it's uh, a writer coming up with a great idea and then all of a sudden, you know, somebody else thinks that's a great idea and they throw money at it and throw money at it until it just explodes and it gathers people. And suddenly, you know, someone's like, hey, I I know you really wanted to make a giant shark, but now we don't have one. What do you think (laughs) about like a gazelle? You know, what? (laughs) We don't, we don't, we, we, okay. I mean, that's what we got the money for. And suddenly, you know, it's an attack of the giant gazelle or whatever. But, and most of the time that usually turns up being bad, but every once in a while, they, they do something magical with that lack of what they wanted and it turns into an iconic moment and that iconic moment is what we again sit around and talk about and you know that's the thing that sticks with us over our memory so yes exactly uh, if Jaws hadn't had the budgetary issues that it had it wouldn't have been so creative to really kind of make it scary like in Jaws the whole not really seeing the shark and the music we associate more than the visuals 
And that's because they just didn't have enough money and they had this animatronic shark that most of the time looked really bad and unbelievable. So they hit it. I mean, they were gonna, it was going to be all over the place in that movie. You were going to see it everywhere. And it was just going to, instead, because they, it was an unrealistic shark, they didn't have the money to make it look right. Boom. Suddenly we get this creeping fear of this thing hunting us, unseen monster. And that wasn't even part of the plan. And that's how it became so amazing because they simply didn't have it. It was kind of a mistake, if you will. And uh, that's one of the beautiful things about film, in my opinion. A, a happy accident, a Bob Ross happy accident, if you will. Oh, guy, the guy was on it. He knew. There are no mistakes, only happy accidents. Now, let me let me take a step back and say, I thought this show was about the 80s and 90s. What are we doing talking about Jaws and stuff from the 70s, Chad? Um, Trying to appeal to a wider audience base. No, actually, no, no, in, all, in all seriousness, you know, you know, film expands, you know, and develops and morphs. It's kind of like the Matrix, you know, changed cinema for like almost a decade. I think it's important to go back and, and, and I was and really where this came from is I was sitting here going, wait a minute. Jaws was came out in 75. Steven Spielberg, you know, Scorsese's, I think, second film was Taxi Driver, but that was his biggest film at the time. And then you had, you know, Lucas, you know, who did Star Wars in 77. I was thinking how mind-blowing that the artists that we still revere today all had essentially breakout hits within three years of each other. Well, another way to say it is you, you don't know where you're going unless you know where you've been. And if we're going to talk about 80s and 90s, like what we think of as film really began in in the 70s uh really you know the late 60s and we'll do a separate episode on the late 60s with you know things like midnight cowboy easy rider 2001 the graduate and so on um that's where cinema really started changing because before the late 60s and those types of films we were talking about you know it was was hitchcock and kurosawa i mean that wouldn't you say roland that was that was pretty much it in terms of sure quality different directing Hitchcock and Kurosawa and everything else was just all the same films films weird in the fact that it's 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 very much like an iceberg um and your perspective is always standing on top of it so what you're standing on is is current time so you look around and you see it and it's amazing because it has kind of grown and evolved with you um you've adapted to that situation Right. This is what you want. You look at it. I mean, watching a 60s movie, a random 60s movie and watching a random movie today, most people are going to prefer the movies today because they're kind of tailored specifically for us and our environment and everything. But the lower you go down into that ice, you know, uh, you can kind of look down and go, oh, okay, well, here's like, you know, uh, 70s and 80s movies, movies I grew up with. And then now you got movies that happened before you were born and then you keep going back. But I mean, I uh when I was studying film history, like one of my favorite movies of all time are really old, which is kind of strange. Uh, but there's two of them, La Jete, which uh, they got remade into 12 Monkeys today, which is fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, and it was a French film of all things, you know, so it couldn't have been farther away from my wheelhouse, but it's utterly brilliant. And in so many ways, even better than 12 Monkeys. And you can go all the way back to, cause I'm a huge sci-fi nerd. So I like Metropolis. Now Metropolis was one of the first like major right. science fiction. Well, the first, let's be honest, a uh, science fiction movie and it's utterly brilliant and we're still stealing from it today. And I think it's brilliant. So yeah, unfortunately the, um, your foundation of film goes back as far as you're allowing yourself to accept it. Come on, Kurosawa, you can watch those movies today and still go, wow, that's brilliant. And even take inspiration directly from that while you might take something today and watch it and go, 
I totally forgot what I just watched. So sometimes that brilliance goes along with the people, like with the directors, the producers, uh, you know, and even the writers. That inspiration can come all the way back. And sometimes you just got garbage, <laughs> which we have a lot of garbage today. We have a ton of garbage today. Let's go all the way back. I mean, so so Jaws is widely considered to be, you know, whether it's true or not, widely considered to be the, quote, first blockbuster, the big first summer blockbuster popcorn flick type that we're talking about here, the Spielbergian uh, style. But going all the way back into ancient film history, I mean, where, where do you think that, do you think there's anything before that? Like, you know, I, we talked about Triumph of the Will. We talked about Gone with the Wind. We talked about Birth of a Nation. Do you think there's anything before Jaws uh, that I listed or otherwise uh, that would be the first blockbuster? Charlie Chaplin. Just not in the 70s. But yes. Well, like, okay, so some of the first film ever was a train. Like, they filmed a train coming right at it. And it scared people so bad they fell out of their seats right you know because there's always that like it's always and we have to look at it now and we would be like that's pedestrian but back then that was scary yeah they were running from the theater thinking the train was gonna smash because it was so real and then the, the immediately the next thing they filmed was porn right <laughs> <laughs> because it was so realistic they were like well that's what we want we don't want to get hit by a train <laughs> That's the evolution of it. That, you know, you always still have to look at history. So at that point in history, that was the first things that they were able to shoot. And they were able to present it. And it was a, re a picture, a magic picture. And now, you know what I mean? We're sitting there going, we could do 3D headsets where we can almost be in the movie. I mean, it would be, sure, it would be better than Atari graphics at this point. But I mean, they're getting to that point. Where pretty soon they're just going to fool you. Um, the Mandalorian uh, right now, and I'm just going to point this out, even though it's not relevant to what we're talking about, but I think it's interesting. So the Mandalorian made um, this circle um, room, and instead of using green screen, um, they're basically just using uh, images now. The actors can actually look around and see those things, and they're shooting just a computer screen that's behind them. So they can put whatever they, they damn well want to in that computer screen, but it gives you realistic lighting. It gives you the actors the ability to play off the location instead of it just being like a giant blue screen. So I'm just going to go ahead and put a pin in it and mark it as this is another one of those moments in history, film history, that we are living in, that we are completely oblivious to, that is going to change everything we see and uh, hear about film. So I just want to market since we're recording this for prosperity that yeah. moment's going to change everything because it's going to it's going to start letting 3d pictures happen a lot easier it's going to start allowing for um uh, uh virtual reality stuff a lot easier and just honestly getting rid of old blue screen and allowing things to be more realistic and ultimately cheaper so just watch that i miss the 80s and 90s getting get, getting back to the question <laughs> okay so um King Kong was like 1930 something, right? I mean, that was that was a, a blockbuster, if you will. The stop motion animation, the blue screen kind of stuff that they did, or or however they did those effects, the claymation and all of that, j just groundbreaking cinematography at the time. I I think I think saying that Jaws was the first summer blockbuster kind of sells cinema history short. I would agree with that statement 100. percent Um. Modern, how we view them today, though, it had that 
feel. You know, it, it definitely had that thing because it Jaws is weird. So like if you go to Alien, yeah. Alien is more of a horror film. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, but then when you get to Jaws, like I never really saw Jaws as a horror film. It it, it has this kind of fun, interesting element to it, something that Alien really didn't have. You know, Alien might jump you out of your seat, it might do whatever, uh, and sure, Jaws might do that too, but they, they felt distinctly different. And I know one's in space and one's about a shark, but they're, they're still about being hunted by mm-hmm. something that is out of your control, beyond your understanding, and its power level is significantly greater, and you can't see it most of the time. So both of those had very distinct things, but the feel is what I think is very relevant. You know, when you watch Jaws, it's a, you're, you're jamming the popcorn in your mouth. You're, you're, wow, you're scaring next to your friend. But like with Alien, it was like a deeper feeling. And I think that that connection, because before then, horror was always kind of like, ah, out of your seat kind of a thing. And it was more of a deeper inside, like you were saying earlier, almost like more cerebral fear. And this was more of a jump out of your seat, laugh kind of fun feel. And that's kind of how the popcorn movie became because it became wider for more audiences. So people can watch Jaws that weren't really into horror films and still kind of enjoy themselves while people who would watch Alien might not enjoy Alien for the you know different reasons because it might have been either too scary or a little bit too, I don't know, realistic maybe. Yeah, I mean, well, Jaws is dubbed a thriller. I, I mean, it's it's... It's not a horror film. But it is about a giant thing eating everyone else. You could absolutely classify it as a horror film. And I think that that's the the distinct difference between the two. A pitch meeting, both of them come off as a horror movie. But once you've shot it and you've seen it, you're correct. One's a thriller and one is a horror movie. And I think that's your difference right there. Stanley Kubrick, my my favorite director, Stanley and, and David Lynch. Those are the two guys. I don't think it's possible to... Well, first of all... You know how good Stanley is by how much of his stuff is referenced in pop culture and in other movies and like specifically The Simpsons. Think about how many times The Simpsons has sent up something of Stanley's. Stanley in in his career in his innovation of adding to the well blockbuster legacy. I mean, he he took over Spartacus, you know, pissed off Kirk Douglas, so they got to bring Stanley in, and that was the last time Stanley ever had to answer to anybody ever. Like he was beholden to the studio cuz he was working on somebody's project. After that, he became the dictator from How I Learned to Love the Bomb, you know, to, to Dr. Strangelove, through, through the end of his career with Eyes Wide Shut, and he had complete control over the script and the vision of the film, and, and, and because of that, he made some stuff that would never have flown in a democracy-type situation. If a studio was designing a film... 2001 would not be it. You know, A Clockwork Orange would not be a, a film that's designed by a studio. There, there's an there's a open forum for you to talk about Stanley and his influence on, on cinema. And they're fantastic. But I think you, you made a point there, too, that film is a collaborative art, but it must be focused. Uh, and it must be focused from a certain point. So when you have a studio and you have, say, a bunch of investors, the more hands you start getting in control of that pie, the more... Well, I'm not going to say exclusively, but I would say the chances of your film or project um, kind of losing its way or becoming petering out and becoming average uh, increases. Uh, when you have a singular vision and then that vision, you find other people that agree with that vision, 
then it just works better. Is the director the be all most important part? Uh, no, I think everybody is the most important part because it is truly collaborative, but their job is to funnel everybody into the same vision, even if that vision isn't their own. Um, and sometimes it's like Kubrick where it's all his, but I mean, you gotta remember that the scripts and stuff weren't Kubrick's. Well, Arthur C. Clarke wrote the book and, and right. And you've got, you know, you got things like the shining, you know, where Stephen you King got Stephen King. What are you yeah. going to do? But well, every everything he ever did was adapted. Everything he ever did was adapted. So they were never his visions, but he was the one funneling that vision into the way that he saw it, uh, and that's important. You're, you're you're right. Okay, so so just just to put this blockbuster discussion in a little bit of context. Look, the weird thing is, is like, okay, so most film and any kind of entertainment, from books, television, everything, is always going to go along with what the masses want. And it's always going to cater to them because people, it's always a business. It's always going to be a business and you need to feed and feed your family. So you're going to give people what they want to buy. And that's the general feeling. But then every once in a while, there's always a break and you can see this in everything. So there's this break where suddenly someone says, you know what? I don't think this is what everybody wants to see. I think people are tired of it. I think they're ready for this next thing. And then they present it. And sometimes it's, Nobody cares. It's forgotten. It's missed. And then other times. Well, the reason. Hold on. Hold on. But, but the reason. The reason why no one cares is because all of that copying of of, of similar like minded you know films. That's because after somebody had success, studios just jump in and want to like mass churn out that stuff to get to get as much revenue. So the only people that are going to stand out are the original filmmakers of the of that genre, of that film, you, you know. The, the, the other thing I'm kind of alluding to or I want to toss into this conversation that we can kind of uh, stir up with it is cult classics. So cult classics are the ones that are ahead of their time. And these cult classics often influence the person who makes that spark that changes the entire consciousness uh, or subconsciousness, if you will, uh, and those things are really important. You know, you're going to have those all over the place, you know, where, where they started out as being terrible and no one liked them. Like, uh, I mean, just it's the one that popped into my head. Big Trouble in Little China. Yes, I know it's not exactly time frame relevant, but nobody really cared for that movie all that much. Everyone liked The Golden Child and stuff like that a little bit better. And then all of a sudden, nowadays, most people know about that movie. And, and a lot of influences have been pulled directly from that movie. And I think the cult classics are important to add into this because they're that almost spark. They're like the little spark that didn't catch. And then eventually you're almost always going to see the spark happen shortly after the cult classics of that genre, um, which are always interesting and I think relevant um, to what we're talking about here because those are often the ones that are forgotten about. I mean, is, didn't Fight Club Didn't Fight Club sort of fall into that? Yeah, And that definitely. kind of fell into the same thing. It like, didn't really do all that well. No, no. it didn't. It was a it was a commercial failure, uh, it, it, domestically, internationally, but it became a cult classic and and has influenced uh, a generation of filmmakers and story writers and a generation of people who didn't really understand the movie. Funny enough, sure. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> you know, people forget Tyler is not the hero of that movie. <laughs> He's actually not what is supposed to be the one so he's charismatic he's fun he's cool he's handsome he's built he's buff he's got the right thing to say at the right time and he is not the hero and it's a very quick little changeroo and switcheroo uh that a lot of filmmakers do and that's one of the reasons why i think fight club is so brilliant because the vast majority of people don't always understand it mm -hmm. and they get what they want out of it 
but yet those who are going to look deeper into the film will get a deeper meaning out of it. And I think those are some of the most brilliant films. And I think a lot of the films that we're talking about here are the same thing. I mean, you can go all the way back to Scarface. Who's yeah. the real hero in Scarface? I mean, who would you say? And that kind of helps define how you watched that movie. And that makes it utterly brilliant. And there's no real right or wrong, but maybe what was intended is not what you're seeing. Do you think Taxi Driver, uh, was Taxi Driver a, a, a big hit at the time? Or was that something that became a cult classic and, and has grown over time? Its reputation, the performance, the writing, uh, the acting. Commercially, it was. I mean, uh, uh, the budget was $1.9 but it did 28.4 at the box office. So by, by every stretch based on budget, that's, that's a win. Man, let's talk about that film. The, the, the films that I think are the most brilliant and the reason why, the, the filmmakers that do stuff like Fight Club, where you can look at it one way for what it is being just fed to you and you enjoy it, or you can actually go back and dissect everything and go back and really think about it and go deeper in the meaning. You know, films that allow you to watch it on a surface level or from a deeper perspective and meaning, those are the films that I think are going to stand the test of time. The, what you're describing is nuance and subtlety and a diverting expectations. Remember, we're coming off of, you know, several decades before this of the studio system and the Hollywood code of, of conduct, essentially. The bad guy always had to be punished. You don't you don't hurt kids on film. Um, you, you know, they're, they're always the, the, the bad guy. You need to learn the lesson of, of crime and murder and all of these things. The bad guy, you know, Jimmy Cagney will get shot at the end or, or you know, put to death or, or whatever. And, and then starting in, in about the 60s with, with, say, a Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, it was okay to start doing the, the anti-hero. And then in the 70s, we get a clockwork orange. And, and then to your point, you know, Taxi Driver, 76 who is who is the we, we know who the POV character is, but but who is the good guy? Uh, same thing, you know, with the Clockwork Orange. It's like your your point of view character is a legit head, is a rapist murderer, and but but through that character, you see the the subtleties that there are no clear answers. Nobody's nobody's pure evil nobody's good society itself is evil you know brainwashing people and and and, and taking away their humanity essentially and, and and you know i think taxi driver is the next step of that so that brings that brings me to my to my my next my next question which really is okay all of the some of the most amazing iconic filmmakers that all came out in the 70s but these are the same people who are talked about today and making movies and, and television. There's been a few, a few breakout filmmakers that have come out, you know, in the eighties, but like, I can't think of many in the, in the, you know, post 2000, there's not many. So like what, what we are getting the stories told from the same people for 40 years. And there's, and there's three times as many movies coming out a year. Correct. But they're getting all the love still. I'm not saying I don't love their content, but at what point does the torch pass? Well, there's two things I'll throw into there. One, film is effectively, I, and uh, guy, I apologize if my numbers are off. It's like, uh, God, I think film's like 130 years old. Really not that long. Okay, it really isn't that long. So 
it, it, it's evolving. So anything that evolves from an animal, it's always going to come into this painful stage where it needs to suddenly evolve and change because it's just not going to happen. It's not going to work anymore. And it's painful as hell. Uh, you know, and we've seen a couple of those mini revolutions um, and changes and evolutions in film, uh, both revolutions, literally, and evolutions. Um, things have changed. You know, we, we've had things like experimental films, you know, primarily in like mm -hmm. the 50s and 60s where you have like Brechtian films where people are like, okay, so my entire concept of my film is to make you hate it in every single possible <laughs> way that a person Wouldn't can hate live? a film. Right. And they're meant to offend you and craze you and, and, and uh, sometimes even make you sick or puke or like Andy Warhol's were like, hey, we're going to shoot the Empire State Building for like 24 hours. And the best thing that happens in the movie is when the sun comes up and people stood up and cheered because they sat in the movie theater for, you know, 18 hours waiting for that one moment to happen. So when you have the 70s and 80s and you've got all these prolific filmmakers changing the way things are now again we're, we've hit the internet we've hit the age of where i can watch any movie i want to but try that in the 60s because the 80s i think the 70s and the 80s were very similar filmmaking wise but the 90s was just like okay we're going in a totally different direction and i think yeah. we've kind of been going in that direction ever since you know now they're really fun because they're escapist and i think that movies became way more escapist and less of a thing about educational thing and now that you have the internet you can have access to watch any of it i mean you can just go it's, hey man like it used to be like hey i've got a copy of taxi driver or bambi what do you want to watch because like that's all you got right and based on who your uh audience is you're going to either go with bambi full on or you go on taxi driver full on you couldn't be like well i want to watch predator okay i have taxi driver and bambi <laughs> now you can be like dude i have access to eight thousand ten thousand twelve thousand movies and i could watch five minutes and go you know i don't want to watch that i'm gonna click it off on a switch and i mean we else. just have access to everything i mean it's just it's all just right there and i think that's why there's no appreciation for art anymore you know when when you're not having to pay money or having to go out of your way to like flip through rack after rack of CDs and 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 spend that that 12 16 whatever bucks to bring it home or that movie you know you're really invested for better or worse you're going to you're going to watch or listen to the whole thing today there's there's just such a lack of appreciation for the value of art because we don't have to invest time or money into it the, anymore. The point you're both making, and I completely agree with you, is that uh, film is more of a product now and less of an art. It used to be art. We are talking about films from the 60s and 70s that were straight-up, groundbreaking, artistic pieces of cultural work. And now, of those 500-something movies... A very slight handful are art, and the rest of it is a product appealing to the lowest common denominator and international audiences. Everybody understands what an explosion is, and it doesn't matter what language you speak. We are losing the art form. But here's oddly enough, I'm going to kind of disagree with you here. All right, so here's the deal. Uh, Andy Warhol, love the guy or hate the guy, but he turned art into consumable uh, 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 consumable stuff for people to consume, you know, to make it easy for anybody to get into. And that's what we're seeing right now. We're in the Andy Warhol phase of film where everything is still artistic and crazy and really hard to do and brilliant and creative, 
but it's meant to be easily consumable. And that's where I'm saying at some point, you're going to see that revolution change um, where people are going to want things a little deeper. They're still there. They're always going to be there, the art films. But now they'll eventually come back. People are going to want more intellectual. But intellectual is not real popular right now. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> intellectual is not real popular right now. I love it. <laughs>